Here is our fourth epilogue for this season. We are still here with Dr. Greg Kelly of the Neurohacker Collective. Doctor, thank you for sticking with me to do the, like, the rest of this conversation here. There was some stuff that I wanted to ask you in the beginning part of this conversation that we had a couple, well, that will have been released a couple of days ago. This one's coming out on Thursday. I just didn't get a chance to put everything into that episode because, I mean, Truthfully, I probably could have talked to you for like an hour or two, uh, you know, as a, as a person who went to school for psychology, neuroscience, you know, I, I am endlessly fascinated with how all of this stuff works, you know, and um, like, like I mentioned in the main episode, as somebody who is constantly engaging in the news, one of the things that I worry about is the effects of chronic stress on our bodies and on our minds. Even like myself, particularly, I've been going out of my way to spend less time engaging on the news, more time just resting, doing things that make me feel better on a day in and day out basis. You know, I think it's immensely important in order to do this type of work that I'm trying to do for the long term. So one of the things I didn't get a chance to ask you before that I want to talk to you about now is how does chronic stress impact our minds I, I you know firstly just what happens to our brains over time when you're just constantly bombarding it with stress cortisol adrenaline just over and over again on a day in and day out basis i think the, the biggest area that it impacts would be what i think of as executive functions that would yeah. be the collection of things that really let us you know perform at our best you know work gym you name it but what you routinely would see is people that are highly stressed, they tend to ruminate a lot. They're really bad at finding and then implementing new strategies to get better in things. They, there's an idea called cognitive flexibility, but think of it as it's what allows us to change our point of view or to change our mind about something. So when we're stressed, you know, that really suffers. And then quite frequently, pro-social things, you know, so empathy, um, you know, the stories we would tell ourselves about other people and why they behaved a certain way, those tend to be cast in the worst possible light when we're really, when we're really stressed. And then the last thing would be that idea of kind of rumination, right? We'll, we'll be consumed by something often that's not in the big picture, super important, you know? So I know my, my quick solution, anytime I find myself ruminating is find is, is there some action I can take in the real world? right now that will shut that off like you know is there a decision i can make is there something i can do that yeah. will cause that rumination to go away so. yeah it, it, it's something that it feels like i know personally for me when i get really stressed out like sometimes i just shut down like my brain just absolutely just wants to just turn off and say you know what anything and everything that's stressing me out right now just needs to get pushed in the side and i do notice that when i'm forced to stay in that stressful states and I have to make decisions, for instance, my decision-making seems to always suffer. Now, is there any kind of, um, I guess, information that you have around why you would say like decision-making might, I guess, just completely collapse when we're in these uh, more stressed states? 
Yes, yeah, it goes a lot of like decision making, executive function. That's the prefrontal cortex, and uh, I just think of stress as being kryptonite for that part of the brain. So I, I think the quote, and it's by Sapolsky, I believe he was. His original book was Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, and he has a, a newer one called I believe it was The Brain. But That's quite that, the title. Um, but that, yeah, I mean, he he studied social. Um, stress in baboons and other primates in Africa. So that okay. was like his background. Brilliant guy. But it's something like, um, you know, stress makes making decisions more challenging and the ones we make are rarely for the better. Something yeah. along those lines. So yeah, I think it's always a good thing. And then I don't know if you've noticed it, but there's some people that are highly visual. And there's there's a subset of people that are like have very limited. There's a spectrum, right? So I'm yeah like on the the end of the spectrum that's not particularly visual, and you know so when I'm you know when I'm stressed, especially with another person, it's more like overwhelm auditory things going on in my brain. Right? So I'm not seeing pictures, but I need almost silence to get to a better place, which is hard to get to in the midst of interacting. But I've had some people that are friends that are really visual and they'll be in their head seeing where they want things to go. So they want to stay engaged. Right. You know, so they they to get to their good place need me to hang out to get to them. Me, I need to like withdraw just at least for a short amount of time to have things quiet down so that I can show up and be better. Right. So I think one of the interesting things, you know, when it comes to what you mentioned of like needing to withdraw is that. That strategy, I think, is super important for some people, and for other people, it makes them even more upset. Yeah, you know, it's it's something that I've learned over time, especially you know, just having talking about this stuff, being a little bit more more open with you know friends, you know, family members, partners, so on, and so forth. You you learn that everyone has a different response to stress, right? Like we all have a different stress, like resilience, stress tolerance. We we process it differently, handle it differently. You know, so there's no real one size fits all, it feels like, for how people, quote unquote, deal with stress. But I, I think one of the things I wanted to ask you about was kind of going back to emotional resilience a little bit, you know, talking about just the importance of dealing with it. I think sometimes in our culture, and our society, we normalize being highly stressed all the time, as if it's not a big deal, as if it doesn't really impact us. But that couldn't be further from the truth, right? I, I mean, if you're constantly taking in stress all the time, it's going to, I guess, overlap into other parts of your life. And I, and I think it will find a way to come out. I think you'd mentioned to me a story about, you know, your dad uh, and, you know, how him being stressed all the time would come out, you know, when he would uh, come home. Can you can you tell me a little bit more about that story? Yeah, so um, I grew up about like honestly it was probably like less than 30 miles from boston but it was one of those you can't get there from here type of towns right so yeah um it probably during rush hour was close to a two-hour commute for my dad to get from the um, beach town we lived in into boston and then he, he was um you know an executive at some point was the president of a very large engineering company in boston right so a very demanding job in terms of um you know both um, brain, but then dealing with a lot of people. Um, so he would, for sure, by the time he got home from his long day commuting, you know, in traffic both ways, we definitely felt growing up, we needed to walk on eggshells, because he would be unpredictable. You didn't know if, you know, like, 
the same thing that might be fine today may trigger, you know, somewhat of a, you know, outburst tomorrow. And if he was allowed time once he came home to, and what he liked to do often was frankly to, to shine his shoes. He would go down into his like work area in like the, the basement area and just, you know, shine the shoes he wore that day. Maybe some he was going to wear the rest of the week, just do something that was more um, like less demanding on the brain, some type of an easy habitual thing. And, you know, often maybe then come up, read the paper and then have dinner. And then the version that we would get of my dad after that, if we let him kind of like slowly become less stressed was, you know, a much friendlier kind of person to hang out, watch, you know, Celtics basketball or Bruins hockey game with or TV. But if you did something in that initial stage before he'd been allowed to de-stress, then, you know, it was much more likely that you'd, you know, at a minimum get a tongue lashing. So (laughs) the way I interpret that now is that idea of brain energy we've talked about a couple of times. And we only have so much brain energy and we're using it from the minute we wake up in the morning till we go to bed. And so by the time, you know, we get, back from a long day, say, at the office or our job, we've used up a lot of that resource. And unless we recharge it, our loved ones just are unlikely to get the best version of us. And it's not our fault, right? Like when we don't have enough energy, the things that get sacrificed are, you know, the social cognition, the, you know, empathy, the understanding others, the emotional self-regulation. So I, like my story about my dad, now that I know a lot more about the brain is like, wow, what a great guy for being willing to like do what it took to raise our family, to make these long commutes, to work hard, you know, that, you know, I just mentally cut him a lot of slack, right? Like I I think of him as the person he was after he could de-stress and calm down, where I think when I was younger, I thought of him much more as the grouchy person that showed up immediately after work. And I think that story we tell about others is super important because that, that colors like how we show up and our feelings for other people. So my goal is to be the best storyteller possible for anyone in my life. Yeah. I mean, sharing these experiences, it's super important. You know, you, you kind of paint a picture of what the experience actually looks like, you know, cause we all, we all hear about these things, you know, about like, you know, well, stress does this to you and this is what happens when you're overworked, so on and so forth. But you know, sometimes it doesn't really hit home until you kind of have that real visualization of, you know, like when you are constantly bombarded, this is how it might look like in behavior. And so that, so that you can recognize it when you see it in somebody else, when you see it in yourself, right? I know for me, I'm always thinking about how can I find better ways to deal with all of this? You know, I like everybody else, you know, have a job, have things I'm trying to do outside of my job, have family relationships, you know, it's hard to manage all these things at once. And I think as you get older, it gets harder. You know, I mean, for me, I've been focusing more on trying to improve things like, you know, diet, exercise, you know, trying to find ways to create more energy for myself. I came across something recently and, you know, you might not be, I'm not sure if you're aware of this stuff or not, but I came across something that said that, um, a majority of our of our neuro or our neurotransmitters or neuro I, I might be butchering this here, but a majority I think of our of our brain cells might actually be created from what we eat, 
Uh, is there is there a connection between our diet and just like how much I guess um how much neurotransmitters we're able to produce on a get on a day in and day out basis? Is there a correlation there? Yeah. So the um like, like neurons, those are like we've actually pruned away. We had more neurons early on in life and pruned yeah. away a lot of those. But neurotransmitters, what neurons would make and then secrete to communicate between other neurons, we are, we're constantly making and remaking those. And the building blocks for the ones, you know, I, I'm sure the audience has heard about dopamine. So dopamine's made from an amino acid called tyrosine or phenylalanine, which is a precursor to tyrosine. Serotonin's made from tryptophan. Melatonin's made from tryptophan. Um, acetylcholine is made from a nutrient called choline that the best dietary sources in eggs and the institute of medicine has a recommendation for how much choline we should get in our diet and they also believe that about 90 percent of us don't get that amount in part because you know, eggs were vilified sometimes starting decades ago so you know even people that eat eggs may be a little bit you know cautious about getting the yolk and the yolk is where the choline is Mm-hmm. So yeah, for um, neurotransmitters is a direct tie, especially to um, you know either fatty foods in the diet or sources of protein, particularly. And then they're, they're, they'll use the term sometimes brain essential nutrients. So the yeah. brain can make something. So the brain can make cholesterol as an example. So the cholesterol in the b- brain, it makes, it doesn't pull that from the blood, but there's other things it can only get from the blood. It can't make. Um, glucose would be one. Glucose is um, its its preferred fuel source. So the brain, it's called the blood-brain barrier, but th- that's what chooses to let things in or keep them out. And okay. certain things like um, DHA, which is an, an omega-3 fat, that has very high preference. The brain loves to take that in because it uses that to build the membranes. And mm. then neurotransmitters, the receptors that listen or neurotransmitters, they sit in these membranes. So the health of the membrane also is important for this neurotransmission because listening to the message from the neurotransmitters happens in, you know, in the receptors that are embedded in other cells' membranes. So bottom line is, yeah, diet has a profound impact on both our current state of how our brain's performing, but how well it will age. So what are some of the foods that negatively impact our brain's health, you know, I, I guess in the short term and in the long term. And then could you give us some examples of maybe some positive foods as well? I think the, the best studied diet for the brain right now would be the Mediterranean diet. So, you know, which is lots of plant foods, high in fiber, you know, moderate amount of good quality meats, seafood, things like that. But the those fats I mentioned, like DHA, the best yeah. food sources of that would be, you know, things like sardines and anchovies and salmon, um, you know, eggs that have been, I think they call them pasture raised is the term now, but, you know, what chickens will naturally, you know, make more of that if their diet has you know, good fats in it. So I would say good fats are really important for the, the brain and bad fats are detrimental because, you know, they compete. Then um, in general, a slightly probably on average you know having a bit more good quality protein helps the brain for most people just because of again it's the basis to build a lot of the neurotransmitters and then like take coffee as an example caffeine actually and um, i think of a lot of things as goldilocks principles like 
you know, one ball's too too cold, one ball's too hot, and one's just right. A lot of yeah. things in the diet or supplement world fall into that category, and caffeine's one. Like caffeine between you know a really low amount, you know, say a quarter of a cup of coffee, up yeah. to maybe like you know two hundred milligrams of caffeine. So like you know maybe a really big cup of coffee often will improve our brain, um, especially attention, processing, things like that. But if we don't have caffeine with something that supplies energy, then really quickly, it's almost like turbo. We just used up a whole bunch of energy running the engine hot, and now we crash out and you'll see people, you know, an hour later, you know, become more irritable and often, you know, a rebound of a drop in energy. And that usually goes away if you have caffeine with some source of energy. So like a, a poor thing to do in my mind would be a non-nutritive sweetener with caffeine. A better thing to do, and you'd see this in Europe, people will have like a small amount of, say like an espresso, um, but they'll have it with a little bit of food. Mm. And if you're not doing that, then make sure you have either, like how I have my coffees with heavy whipped cream, heavy whipping cream and a little bit of honey. And that, like the the goal is to like not crash, right? To like be able to have that and sustain attention, focus, you know, good self regulation of mood for hour after hour, and that works for me personally. So, anyways, one of the things I see people do poorly is, and this goes back to when I was in the Navy, like oh, I'll just have black coffee with no food, yeah. and that's just a recipe to like have the what caffeine does well wear off really quickly and what it does poorly, you'll, you know, have a lot more of it. I think one of the last things I wanted to ask you about was exercise. I mean, don't need to get into it here, but I, I think everyone knows the absolute just culture in, in our, in our country here around exercise. It feels like there's a million different people trying to tell you what the best ways to work out is. And there's a whole industry around it. It's like, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So it, it feels like there's always competing narratives out there as far as, you know, what is beneficial, what isn't beneficial, so on and so forth. From the information that you have, what type of exercise, I guess, is the most beneficial for people uh, and, and kind of like relaying back to, to mental health and, you know, just not just physical health, but mental health as well. I think for long-term, you know, brain health. So like, as we age, you know, some degree of aerobic fitness and something to work on that, but that can be as simple as walking. Yeah. Um, something strength gaining because um, we tend to lose muscle mass and strength as we age. But for like an average, you know, say like, you know, person that's just working and wants to, you know, have their brain perform a bit better during their day. Yeah. The, the key thing is just periodic breaks. But, so what happens, we talked about this energy, but our brain will fundamentally become regionally depleted in glucose or energy if mm -hmm. we're working the same thing over and over. And it needs a pause to redistribute energy from where it maybe wasn't used, but it's already in the brain to where it can be used. Okay. And what does that is creating some type of, of deviation would be the word um, a stress re researcher named Salia used to use, but doing something completely different. So a poor choice of a break would be you're a computer worker, you're going to take a five minute break, and now you choose to look at your smartphone for five minutes. You're fundamentally still now overloading the visual system. Uh, a much more, I think, wise way to do that would, okay, let me take a, a quick walk around the block, or if you, know, if you have some nature nearby. 
you know, go out and look at the clouds or running water, or, you know, if you have a fish tank in the office, something that's using the visual system in a completely different way to create that deviation. So I know one of the things I try to do routinely is just take a, a five minute walk around the, the block where I work from, maybe not every hour, but um, somewhere in that range. And I set a, a timer on my computer that I have to forcefully override every hour <laughs> so yeah. that I don't take that break. And what happens is quite often in that break, something that I've been you know, working on will shift in a way that it falls into place. And when I come back, it's like, oh, this is a better way to write that. Or you know, this is a, a better way to explain this now. So, um, and if the minimum, it tends to like again restore that attention system. So, anyways, I think that can be walking up and down, you know, stairs in the office if we yeah. have access to those quickly. There's lots of you know simple hacks. It, it's more than anything just making it so that the story isn't I'm too busy to do this. It's build it in so it's part of like what you routinely do. And it's why, like I said, I used the, an app on my computer that you know, at least reminds me and I have to forcefully say, no, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to keep working. Right. Well, you know, again, Dr. Kelly, I, I really do appreciate you coming on the show today and, you know, talking to us about, you know, stress, um, cell phones, uh, positive psychology, you know, breath work, all the different ways that, you know, we can, both be aware of the negatives in our environments and how they impact us and be aware of the positive things that we can do to counteract some of the negative things that are going on. And I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about all of this. Uh, one more time, where can people find out more about Neurohacker Collective online? Yeah, our website is neurohacker.com and Instagram is where we put out a lot of our, um, our educational content for our followers. So, you know, I think following us on Instagram would be the best way. And I think that's how you found us maybe originally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will, I'll speak to that for a second here. Uh, go follow them on Instagram. hundred percent recommend. I I've been doing it for well over a year now. They put out great infographics on so many of the different things that we talked about in this episode and a lot more. So definitely go follow them on Instagram. Great follow, in my opinion. Uh, for those who are interested, those links will be in the episode description. So go ahead and click on that now and you will see those links. Uh, please go ahead and give them a follow. If you like this episode, please share it on social media, wherever it is you spend most of your time, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, wherever you spend your time at. Uh, thank you so much to everyone who listened to this episode today and we will see you in the next one.